You're listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Please enjoy this week's show. It is 100% news this week, and we have a little bit of fun uh, all the way through, but especially in the bonus show. With a little bit of a tease, we have some content uh, we couldn't resist. We had to talk about Trump a little bit, but also GMOs. Stay tuned for a good show, and uh, as a reminder, please join us at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority to become a member. We could really use your support, and you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. It really does help. Hope to see you soon. Other than that, enjoy the show. Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, and we are, as usual, have a lot of news for you this week. A lot of environment news. No guests. All no, news. Mm-hmm. No guests, all news. 100% news this week. Well, the news is there's no guests. Oh, ah, okay. Uh, so now you're all caught up. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan and uh, Deirdre are here with me today, and we're going to be talking about a wide variety of news. And uh, just before the show, Stefan had a good idea, which is that we're actually going to start with the worst news of the week. And get better. Hmm. So unlike normal shows where it's just sort of like you can't really enjoy the good news because it's in a sandwich of bad news, right. uh, the show will slowly improve. So if you're, uh, if you're having a rough day, hang on. If you're having a really rough day, maybe tune out for like 10 minutes and then come back. Yeah. <laughs> or, or if you're listening to the podcast, maybe fast forward a few there minutes. There we go. Well, yeah, yeah as, as we discovered, some people just skip the entire show and just listen to Deirdre. Yeah, right yeah. to the bonus show. Yeah, exactly. You just want to hear Deirdre. Well, we have uh, Deirdre will actually be on the main program today. And <laughs> and uh, I, have a, I, have a, I have a topic for the bonus show. I'm not going to tease that right now. We'll get to that later. Right. Without further delay, however, Stefan, you're going to introduce our first news story. Yes. Uh, so as the environment goes, uh, you know, or as environmental news goes, uh, this is this is a, 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 what I a, we started in part because this is an unprecedented thing. I think we've talked about we you know I feel like we're generally pretty good at at uh, at covering some of the larger disasters or extinctions or things like that that are occurring in the world, uh, especially within the environmental field. Uh, but this I think I've never reported on this before, mm. uh, and and it, like I didn't even know it was a thing that could possibly like it, I didn't even consider it. Uh, but in in uh, in Bolivia, uh, Lake Puopo. Uh, was officially declared evaporated last month, and I didn't fully understand that you could. Affi- I knew like I, you know like often get officially declared you know extinct, uh, but officially declared evaporated was a was a new sentence that I did not fully understand. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting about this is that it's of course uh, an example of some of the things that are happening. Uh, you know, uh, a German glaciologist. Uh, who who studies the rising temperatures uh, from burning of fossil fuels uh, named Dirk Hoffman uh, called this, this is the picture of the future of climate change. That's a direct quote. Yeah, and I want to just jump in there really quickly, which is that one thing when we're reading a lot of like news stories or especially like uh, official documents about official goings on, uh, there's a lot of like technical definitions of things, right? Especially with science and po- whenever you're talking about either science or policy, aka 98% of this program, uh, a lot of the time there's like a, an official declaration of something. So like in a lot of cases... I was expecting it because it would be normal uh, uh, to that, you know, well, okay, evaporated means that it has 80% loss. No, no, it's gone. It's the home is gone. Yeah. yeah, there's photos. It's gone. Yeah. 
that just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it's and, 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 and you can read it. Uh, it's a whole bunch of different. And again, what I think was partially interesting about this whole thing uh, is that it comes from a. Uh, it's not just one thing. You know, often when things like this, you, you want one thing to blame. And and I think part of the difficulty of talking about climate change so often is that there's never just one thing. Mm. Uh, so you know, part of this is the fact that the, that the Andean glaciers are are disappearing. Uh, and so, and so, a lot of the actual water that was going to go in was 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 filling up this lake uh, stopped, uh, or was slowing down. Uh, and then, you know, and then El Nino, uh, the, the drought caused by the recurrent El Nino, uh, actually, you know, basically, in some ways, again, took away a lot of the extra water and it evaporated a lot of a, a lot of the water. Uh, and then combine these sort of things already with the fact that then then there's a big diversion of water into into local mining. Uh, and some diversion into agriculture, uh, but the larger one went to mining. Uh, again, once again, caused this whole thing. So it's not just one. Th- you can't. Part of this thing I think is interesting, again, which we, we which we try to you know cover on the show is that it's you know it's it's not it's, climate change isn't going to isn't going to isn't going to just come in. It's not it's not a boogeyman of one specific thing, right? And mm. and it's not like you know and outside of El Nino. And theoretically, outside of outside of, of the Andean glacier meltings, maybe the amount of water that mining was taking would have been fine. You know, maybe that was that would not be a problem. Mm. But it's the sort of combination combination effect of all these different things that have led led them to basically believe that they don't think this is they don't actually think it's coming back. Yeah. Uh, you know, in this in this article from the New York Times, they they interview a local uh, named Juvenal Gutierrez, uh, and he says he's who's moved because he said there's no future here. Yeah, people are sold their boats. They're they're gone. Yeah, they're gone. So, I mean, I think that's a really important thing here, and we just, you know, we'll harp on that theme, uh, our, our token harping on this theme for this week, uh, was just the idea that, uh, you know, a lot of the time when we're looking at, uh, j- just to continue to challenge that idea that, you know, somebody's got this, there's somebody on it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody in the government, it's someone's job to watch this. Um, you know, is that it's not the, frequently it's not, and sometimes it's outright ignorance and sometimes that it's that lobbyists, and we'll get back to that topic in a minute, have, uh, you know, found a way to, to either use loopholes or manipulate policies to, um, to their advantage. And so one of these things will be like, you know, in, in tons of cases, and like we're seeing with all these pipeline discussions here in Canada, uh, well, okay, yes, we're doing some consultations, but only these six people get to say anything and they only get to talk for three minutes, but it's, it's, it's the same sort of thing. Like we're in this th- thing where exactly where they're like, OK, well, you know, we're measuring the amount of water this uh, water body normally has and we're measuring the amount of uh, water that the mine get to take. And, you know, a mine, you know, B minus A equals C. Good. Well, good. Yeah. But you didn't take anything else into account. <laughs> Nothing else was considered. And yeah. and so it means that even if that has the best science ever applied to it, it's it's rendered completely invalid because you just didn't take the bunch of stuff into account. And that's basically the story of you know, humans so far as attempt to deal with climate change was, you know, hey, but we did this. Yeah, but you didn't count. It's not the right answer. The numbers you're using are basically made up. And this is a perfectly example of that. You know, I bet there's a bunch of people that, that were shocked. It was like, but we were monitoring. Well, you screwed up. Well, not to mention just the, the idea of that monitoring is enough. You know, it's the same thing yeah. I, I, to sort of throw back to – to last week's, uh, you know, hard point, uh, which was this idea that consultation with First Nations is not listening to them. <laughs> uh, and so, like, you know, they can consult the scientists to find out how much water we're running out of. But if the, if the consultation doesn't
doesn't lead to policy, then nothing changes. Yeah. Uh, so the, so the, the, the last piece about this that I find interesting um, or n- important to note uh, well, is that it's now, now that it's down to 2% of its former water level. So really, when we say it's gone, it's, it's gone. Uh, and, and basically, it used to be 16 feet deep. So it's never a super, super deep lake, but it was, a, it was an important lake. And biologists say that 75 species of birds are, have now all left the lake. Uh, but perhaps, perhaps more importantly from a human level, uh, this is an example of it's really hard to explain to people where all these sort of quote unquote climate refugees might come from. You know, when there's these numbers of how many climate refugees people expect to exist, uh, from time to time, everyone's always like questioning the numbers. They seem too high or, or, or whatever. Uh, but these are the kind of, these are the kind of things where, where you don't, you don't, you, you won't even necessarily, people won't even be counted as refugees because they're moving from inside this, inside Bolivia to another part of inside Bolivia. Right. But it's still displaced people. It's and displaced it's still, people and it's, and, it, and where are they going? They're going to already crowded and you know underfunded cities right? exactly so yeah, exactly and, yeah. and 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 what they you know what they was was once sustaining them now can't right uh and you know there's it's it's hard, and, it's, and this isn't even being counted because no one fully knows how many people were in this town in the first place it sounds as if at one point there were a couple you know like three to four thousand mm. uh and and this is but this lake was obviously a major part of their a part of their part of their life livelihoods uh and yet so none of these people these people are sort of the forgotten uh climate dis- people affected by climate change because they just end up, they just end up in cities, and everyone just is like takes that you know. Then they becomes parts of urban you know, and a whole story about how you know urban cities are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but you want to know why? It's because we're destroying the land that people are living off of in other places. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can't get water because your lake evaporated, uh, then you're you're going to move somewhere else. Uh, and so it's and so I think it's important to remember these sort of stories when people start talking about sort of displaced people or, or, or climate change uh, causing causing refugees because it's not necessarily going to be super obvious uh, how or where they came from. Yeah, and I think I think the last thing on, on on that point is exactly just to finish your thought there was that yeah then they're going to move and then they're going to be consuming less more people will be consuming less resources where they move to and that's one of those uh, that's yet another thing that's almost never calculated in any of this stuff be like oh well those people move yeah but they didn't vaporize yeah they went somewhere and they're still going to need resources they're still going to need clean water and they're going to need food and they're going to need shelter and that's going to come from somewhere else that now has less of a resource from that so you're decreasing supply and increasing demand. Uh, um, is a uh, very shaky road to go on when that's when you're always moving in that direction and pretty much everything is every single single thing we're talking about uh, food arable land uh, places you could let any anything we need for anything all of those things there's more need and less availability um, but yeah everything's fine I'm sure yeah exactly uh, and I think the last thing to point out is you're, when you, whenever you displace someone from from where they are you're moving from them from a place where their skills were built up to live in that area to another area. You know, people who are used to living in in a rural fishing village cannot just move. They aren't going to learn how to code and start working at a you know like at. It's so funny. I was going to say the exact same example. Yeah, <laughs> like it's just you know that's not that's you know like maybe they will, but that's not a solution for everyone. Right. Uh, but anyways, to move on, uh, to get to the next story topic because this sort of carries on our our on our. You know, little little bumpy road here, uh, bumpy road of a week, uh, is 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 the climate scientists under under attack from frivolous lawsuits article out of the Guardian, right? Uh, in part, so it's a it's a jump from sort of thing, but I think this is important because you know we, we there's a we've we've already t- 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 
we started off with how places go when we don't listen to science necessarily, and now we're talking about why scientists are harder to get getting heard, basically. Right. And it will lead into our sort of our t- minor tease by you already lobbyist thing from earlier. Right. So the the, the thing about this one as as well was that um, I mean this is something we already knew was going on, but we have to sort of uh, remind people, and and it has to be taken within context. So I mean, there's one thing which is that. Uh, there's something called the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund. Uh, they're d- defending climate scientists against frivolous lawsuits. Uh, and they're like, great, okay, so they have defense. Well, it's not that simple um, right. because there's very limited supply of, of extremely smart and well-educated and funded and validated and proper degrees and whatever people. Uh, and there's a very concerted effort to uh, with people with a whole bunch of money to spend and money to lose. Uh, around climate change uh, who are basically just doing a cost-benefit analysis and going, uh, you know, I can spend $100,000 and waste a bunch of scientists' time, take six months out of the research time, completely shut down all of their stuff. A lot of the time, these these grants will disappear. It's not like they can they can't delay their, their work. They're all on timelines. Um, and you can, you know, you can set back some research that might have, you know, cost you hundreds of millions of dollars, but all you got to do is throw $100,000 at it. That's, that's nickels. That's yeah. nickels on the dollar for, for these people. But that's you're literally crushing it. So there's there's so many numerous examples of this. But the the thing that I want to put into uh, context just for I throw back to you, Stefan, is that, uh, you know, this is this is being done at the same time that Exxon is literally being investigated for deceiving the public. We have uh, a story we did a few weeks ago about uh, Peabody Energy, the failed uh, coal company that's now bankrupt. Uh, partially because instead of investing in, in modifying their business to deal with reality, they invested insane sums, even for them, insane sums of money in trying to fight reality. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a losing strategy in every possible direction. We already have, we have people in, being investigated essentially for fraud, and yet there's, there doesn't appear to be any way or any incentive, if, if there is a way, uh, to prevent this from keeping happening. Like, we know it's happening. We, we, we've, we've established that it is a fact that it's happening, uh, and it's simply continuing. And that's the thing that I find mind-boggling. At, at what point do you go, okay, we need, to, we need to make a small policy change here. We need to change a law to make it so that some, some restrict some form of anti-slap legislation where they'd be like, oh, great, you're going to file a frivolous lawsuit. That's $10 billion. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Peabody Energy uh, because this story itself actually centers around an organization called Energy and Environment Legal Institute. Uh, and I love all of the names of organizations that are against climate change. They're <laughs> Friends of Science. Funny. Yeah. They're Friends always of Science funny. is my favorite. Yeah. my favorite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, because, but this organization, Energy and the Environment Legal Institute, uh, who is carrying out these frivolous lawsuits, uh, are funded by one and only Peabody Coal. Uh, as well as Arch Coal, Alpha Neutral Resources, and other, uh, um, and so these are billion-dollar companies uh, funding these, funding this this organization that literally is just going around suing climate scientists. Uh, and what's interesting is the way they're doing it. And the, this is uh, this is in their own words. Uh, their goal of, of the uh, of, so the, well, the way they do is they sue it for emails because they want all email correspondence. Right. And the, and the fight here is that if you get is that. Is that basically they're saying like, well, it's open science. That's what we should be doing. Uh, but the course, and then and scientists are like, well, we can't have candid conversations on our emails if we know we're going to get sued over them, right? Um, and but even so, the people, so the organizations themselves who are doing this, the suing, uh, have in their own words saying their goal is to embarrass both Professor Hughes in this particular case uh, and Overpeck and the university. So they're suing for the stated goal of embarrassing these climate scientists and the university, not because so. Like, like, which undermines their entire credibility from the get-go. Yeah. Uh, but well, this- some people's response to this is the idea that you know that that whole thing about with the P- 
people's response to a lot of like police state stuff, which is, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, what do you have to fear? Okay, well, as you've already identified, this is you're, you're actively using this to prevent, to harass them and to prevent them from doing their research uh, is, is part of it. Uh, but it's, it's also the case that like, does, can anyone say, can anyone with a straight face right now, honestly, everybody who's listening to my voice right now, think about it. If someone went through every email you'd ever sent and had the ability to pull sentences out at random that you could not be made to look bad, does it, can anyone say that with a straight face? Stefan, if, if people went through our correspondence, <laughs> do you think they could find anything that uh, taken out of context would seem embarrassing? I think if someone listened to the show long enough, <laughs> context, they could do that. Yeah, they, don't need, they, they don't even need the email. The only saving grace is that we have something like 10,000 hours <laughs> on the record that, that could be used for context. But absolutely. Like, this is ludicrous. Yeah. This is, the, the fact, again, that the fact, again, that they can't simply be sued out of existence for wasting everybody's time and, and being countered to science for something that's obviously nonsense. Yeah. Uh, it boggles my mind. So the reason why it's back in the news, actually, is, is a mildly depressing reason, uh, which is because uh, previously uh, the Virginia Supreme Court actually denied their claims and ruled that academic research correspondence actually should be protected. Uh, but then much more recently, uh, the court reversed its earlier decision and determined and said that actually disclosure was warranted. Uh, and, the, and their quote at that point was that alternative methods of communications have been made and remain available to Professor Hughes and Overpeck and any over, other similarly situated persons should they desire to correspond in confidence regarding research projects and like endeavors. Which is in the article is pointed out that that's basically telling climate scientists that if they ever want to talk about their about their research in a candid way they have to call people because if you don't call people then we can always get all of your emails and, and, and the, the thing that wasn't in the article that I find ludicrous is you think they're not just going to sue for your phone records after like, <laughs> it's just it's 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 nonsense it's yeah. so silly um, but but the, 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 so what I actually want to get to is a larger context here uh, to, to pull back a little bit is this conversation about this this way of using sort of slap legislation and, and the way it's entering not only science but also but also um, but also the media because uh, you know anti-slap legislation has existed uh, or le- an- like sort of slap is like is is basically the way is a way S- to strategic suing. lawsuits against public participation which doesn't perfectly apply here but it's it's close enough no exactly but it, but it's existed in public participation for a long time right it's existed right. that is existed that if that in the public sphere companies would sue people basically to scare them away mm. and what's what's kind of terrifying about this is that's taking that tactic and bringing it to science in the media. Mm. Uh, and, 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 then, and as you do that, the numbers and the, diffic- and the problems get magnified. Uh, and so what's interesting about this is that when I read this article, it, it reminded me of, 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 of Peter Thale's attack on Gawker, uh, which, for those you don't know, uh, Peter Thale is a, is a, is a billionaire uh, on the board of Facebook uh, who really, really doesn't like Gawker Media for legitimate reasons. But again, after that, after that basically gets, gets lost. Uh, and he... It's, at, it's at, a case study on, on how much of a tenter, temper tantrum you can throw if you're a billionaire. And, and what you can do, <laughs> right? So basically what Peter Thale did was that he went around and funded every single le- person who wanted to sue Gawker. Everyone. Uh, and and so and what that meant, there's a whole bunch of sort of a whole bunch of uh, minor cases that he was helping with, and the biggest one was also Hulk Hogan, uh, and they won the Hulk Hogan, uh, which which case, which then meant Yucker already had to pay out a whole bunch of money, uh, but then on a smaller scale, uh, every the fact that they, he was going to have killed them, his whole plan was, and Yucker has now declared bankruptcy uh, because he's basic, and he was never going to stop. He had billions of dollars. It was super cheap on the dime for him to 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 use this method to try to destroy a destroy a media outlet. Mm. Um, 
and and this and, and for it, a personal grudge, no less valid or not. Yeah, I actually have sympathy for the grudge. I have no sympathy for the response well, to it. Exactly, but it was a legitimate grudge. But it was a personal issue. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it wasn't you know, and and this as an as a, as a way to silence media. Mm. Uh, is it, it, if if you know if tech billionaires start discovering that they, they can just get anything any story they don't like they can just threaten to sue you into 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 non-existence uh, that has an unbelievable quieting impact on, on on this sort of stuff and that's and that's what terrifies me about this sort of it coming into the world of science and media uh, is that we will need some sort of legislation to start actually you know addressing the fact that the right now we're in a scenario where the incredibly rich uh, can can basically use our internal systems uh, and, and perfectly legally uh, to fight things. Deirdre? Um Do you guys think that it would be the same case in Canada? Do you think, like, if Gawker was a Canadian company and was being sued by a Canadian, do you think the ju- judicial system would be... Because I know, like, the judicial system here is different than the states. Like, we don't have as many suing cases. Um, that stuff just doesn't happen as much. Uh, it's not as easy... Um, do you think it'd be the same? Do you think Gawker would still be big? I, I think that's. I think it's a very Canadian, uh, sorry, a very American style uh, thing, and that has a lot to do with the laws. Uh, admittedly, not an expert on either the Canadian or the American uh, laws, but I know. I, I my belief is that that would not be the case. But uh, yeah, it would be much that. harder. Yeah, it would be uh, very, very. There hard, are yeah. there are definitely a bunch of rules that make suing a lot easier in the United States and not here. Uh, in part, I believe if you sue and you lose here, you always have to pay the other person. Right, person's legal fees, uh, so it would be it would be a lot harder to actually. Mm-hmm. To, but again, again, I honestly think if you have enough money, and because like again, if, even if you even if you never are going to lose, even if you will eventually lose, if you can sap enough money out of an organization beforehand, um, and and part of this also is just responding to the legal challenges. That's difficult. Uh, so it's definitely, I think it definitely is less likely in Canada uh, because of our laws to make it more difficult. But mm. I still think that if you really wanted to, you could probably. You'd probably pull it off at least to some degree. If there's any lawyers out there who are screaming at the radios right now, <laughs> yeah. we wish to correct us. Yeah, GreenMajority.ca is a great way to contact <laughs> us. Uh, well, I want. There's more on this lobbying. We're gonna we're gonna actually move into Canadian example now, but uh, I, I want to go to the break first here. We'll come back. We'll start fresh. Uh, we're gonna talk more as uh, we both Seven and I have teased. We're gonna talk a little bit about lobbying and how you can evade the rules in Canada and and so another way. So we've got you know public suits of and, and public harassment and threatening. We also have behind the scenes stuff that. Uh, apparently is completely legal to do, you know, because loopholes. Well, you didn't technically. Steph and I, you know, don't eat my cookies. Well, it's not technically a cookie. It's technically a small pie. (laughs) Darn it. It's a small chocolate chip pie. Delicious, delicious chocolate chip pie. You win again. (laughs) You're listening to The Green Majority, whether it sounds like it in the last 10 seconds or not. You are, in fact, listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM on one of our wonderful, wonderful and extremely appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country and now internationally as well, in addition to our partners over at rabble.ca for promoting our podcast on their site as well. Well, very appreciated to all of them and all of you for listening to the program. We're going to be back with more news in just a minute after we hear from Alex, who is our tech this week, who's going to tell us what we're going to listen to. All right, you are listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. If you enjoyed the brief glimpse of that track, you will be able to find more information about uh, Alex's band on the website, as usual, at greenmajority.ca, along with links to every single one of these stories uh, because we publish our notes. Yes. 
Transparency? No. We just spend a lot of time in university, and it's kind of a habit now. <laughs> so show your work, friends. All our work is shown on the website, greenmajority.ca. It's also where, you, if you're listening on the radio, you can find the podcast version, of which you will uh, hear a slightly extended version of the show. <clears throat> we have a, a, uh, a little bit of a looser discussion at the end, a little bit more freeform. Uh, occasionally, there's some colorful language as both either a promotion or a warning, depending <laughs> on your, your particular tastes. Uh, and it also occasionally, I would say potentially frequently, gets off topic. So we're not even necessarily talking about the environment stuff. I, I have a feeling I made it one and talking about something completely nothing to do with the environment this week. But, well, it's a secret. You're, you have to listen to the show to there find out. Yeah, but there's a, there's a thing. There's a thing. Wanna, there's a thing I want to talk about. <laughs> okay. Getting back to the news, though, Stefan, we were, uh, we're talking about lobbying. Do you want to lead us in here? For sure. Uh, so this is uh, to carry on our mining theme. I think the theme may, may, be, uh, may be mining to some extent as well, uh, which is that there's, a, there's been a sharp uptick uh, reported, uh, reported for one of, the, uh, one of the fascinating little pieces of, um, what do you call it, uh, you know, Community community news to some extent, you know. I don't know. I don't, like uh, not saying community seems uh, seems to make it sort of minor, but I, you know, like there's a lot of the industry one, industry news. Industry news. No, I was going to say outside of industry news. You know, sort of the it's one of these pieces of news that sort of comes from you know it comes from Despog Canada, which again is one of these sites that uh, you know it's not it's not a mainstream news site. It's alternative news. That's the word I was looking for. It's alternative news. One of our one of our friends in alternative news. I, would, I, sh- I should add, just because for some people that's not a positive uh, alternative, but also extremely well referenced. Oh yes, for so sure. So this is, this is the Dsmog blog. Is it's not like Steve's opinions. Um, <laughs> Although stevesopinions.com, great website. If that's not patented, <laughs> I'm going to go home and do it right now. We have to find a Steve. Uh, yeah, so, carry that's on. true. Um, my dad's name is Steve. Uh, we can ask him. Uh, but anyways, the so this is a story from uh, from from Dsmog blog, uh, and it's all about uh, the mining industry, and they're they're apparently on a bit of a a lobbying spree, uh, in so much so that they actually have uh, in the last since October, so since just since just Trudeau uh, got elected, since the new election, uh, there have been a hundred and sixty four quote unquote registered communications. Uh, between uh, f- with a couple of the larger mining uh, companies, and to put that in perspective, um, that's actually more than uh, that's more than the three largest oil and gas lobbying groups combined. Mm. Uh, and again, again, during this one period of time, uh, but it's interesting to sort of see this uptick at that moment. So the, the 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 article is really asking sort of like, well, why? You know, why is it suddenly? Why suddenly now are are mining companies sort of flocking to the provin- the federal government uh, to plead their case? Uh, and and it's it, and there's a couple things. I think the one part, of course, is that there's a uh, that the Trudeau government is 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 you know is making noises, uh, which I think is the is the highest praise I can offer to the Trudeau government. They are making noises uh, about doing things uh, such as respecting uh, Aboriginal uh, uh, Aboriginal lands, and then also uh, you know it actually in this small blog it gives them credit for for Trudeau saying he's considering a uh, a federal wide carbon tax. Uh, that's I have no I have no faith that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, just a, as a really quick note on that, that was actually something I pulled out of here as well, which is, is, is like I was like, wow, the mine is, mining industry has a higher opinion of yeah. Justin Trudeau than we do, apparently. Yeah, the, the mining uh, industry because is they were ter- they're apparently since he's been elected terrified that he might uh, start to regulate them, and all the apparently all the people in the environment movement, or or at least most of them, been like he's not going to do anything. Yeah, I just find that amusing that they're they're more they're more concerned about his liberal agenda than we are. Well, I think that yeah, I think you see that. 
almost everywhere. Um, although to be fair, you know, there was uh, I I think there is a little, little I think there's a, the flip side of this is that them being scared is at least somewhat interesting to me. Mm. Uh, in that you know maybe you know in that same way that when the coal companies started coming to the Ontario government, being like regulate us, uh, that was because they saw the writing on the wall. Mm. Uh, but to carry on, there's, there, there, uh, there's a couple different things about going on in the mining industry right now. That's that's sort of fight. So it's the one they're scared of the ways the federal government can come into it. Uh, but two, they're also obviously the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is is still being is is in the process of being decided on whether we sign it or not. Which obviously they have large interest in. Um, and and then and then and then prices are down everywhere. And I, this is the part that I find actually kind of fascinating is that we here we we see this uh, we see this fact that iron ore prices and copper and gold are all down. Uh, gold did jump up after Brexit, but I'm not sure, so I'm not sure exactly where they are, how long that is going on. But but commodity prices are down, and I think that's interesting. That the same time that oil has gone down, it's almost like the markets are telling us that these things are becoming less valuable, and maybe we should stop investing in them. I don't know the market. I, like, that's this. I'm just. I'm not sure. I'm reading the market correctly, but Deirdre. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the recent uh, hype on Twitter about the Economist posting about why millennials aren't buying diamonds. <laughs> oh, I did see that, and I laughed. <laughs> but uh, I think we're along the same lines. Yeah. yeah, gold always jumps whenever there's something doomy seeming, and because you know when the, when the when the world's gone to hell and society's broken down, and we're all living in like a Mad Max universe. If there's yeah. one thing you know you need, it's gold. It's gold. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, no, yeah. The diamonds one was great. All of the responses to that were so hung. Yeah. It's just like it's like because they're useless. Is that the reason why? I, I, I don't know about them. I, I, I'm investing in astronaut ice cream and shotgun shells, personally. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but the uh, the but yeah so the so the diamond so <laughs> diamond version there we go yeah can, can we get ice cream and, and diamond gold. is that a thing is that an option yeah. um, but what I find so fascinating about all this is that it is you know all of this sort of fear is being built up uh, around around these commodity prices going down um, and and all at the same time. Uh, and so there's this massive lobbying effort now to sort of to to, to sort of to, to find a way to save them, quote unquote. Uh, when in part it's like maybe maybe we just do other things. Um, and and as a quick aside on these other things, and we'll come back to the whole lobbying effort, but this segues too well. Uh, is that there's another report coming out actually also on on Despog about about how geothermal energy could put thousands of Alberta's oil sector back to work uh, in the oil and gas sector back, uh, yeah. sector uh, by repurposing oil wells into geothermal. Uh, and some of this is like this is a conversation. And it, what, what's fascinating about this, of course, is that the currently government regulations actually don't let that happen because they haven't figured out how to deal with it. Yeah. Due to due to our this is, this is something we've talked about before, but not in not in this specific way, which is that due to our uh, Canadians, uh, specifically Albertans uh, to a large degree, but uh, Canadians' uh, expertise uh, in in some um, very difficult uh, style of, of drilling and, and mining and other sorts of resource extraction, we actually know a thing or two about. Uh, drilling, and yeah. it turns out that's the most important thing for geothermal. Uh, and, and it turns out Alberta's got a whole ton of it. But uh, where are these people going to apply their expertise, Stefan? Well, exactly. Well, that's the thing. And the question is whether or not the Alberta government can actually get on board and actually start providing the abilities to them to actually get back to work in this manner. Hmm. Uh, and it's a fa- it's a fascinating uh, sort of transition that could be happening. And yet we're still talking here about you know it, it, you wonder why they're lobbying so much. The lobbying is because they want to they don't want us to change the conversation. Hmm. The, you know, the, the mining and, and oil and gas. Have very very high interests 
and not having conversations about geothermal. Uh, and if and to a memo to anyone who's currently running a oil an oil and gas business in Alberta and wondering how to get environmentalists on side, a good first step: start using your wells for geothermal. That at least start walking the walk a little bit if you want to actually if you want to prove you want to you actually care about this sort of thing. I, I don't have time to pull out the number right now, but uh, we know it's, it starts with a B. Billion. Mm. Uh, the amount of money spent trying to, and we'll get to this in a second, uh, develop clean energy from uh, clean energy from uh, dirty energy. Mm-hmm. So things like clean coal and clean tar sands and all this sort of thing. Billions of dollars spent. Well, instead of spending a couple hundred grand or a couple million dollars with the the well you've got, <laughs> like, and th- this is this is the thing wh- where I think th- this is a perfect example. I think of why. So many people who you know are not super face pressed against the glass on this on this stuff get so confused. I think about why you know, or, or just sort of assume out of knee jerk reaction that so many of the environmentalist claims are are ignorant. First of all, because the you know the people in these sectors go, oh come on now, children, you don't know what you're talking about. This is big adult stuff, and basically are just super condescending about the whole thing. Um, and then everyone else goes, well, that has to be true because you wouldn't if that if what the environmentalist was claiming, like who wouldn't do that? It's so obvious, so they have to be wrong. Mm. No, it's actually that bad. That's why we're so upset. Yeah. Well, and so <laughs> and so an example of this uh, to carry on our coal conversation uh, is the attempts to bring up uh, to bring clean coal into the United States. Uh, and it's a and it's a fundamental piece of their platform. And this is an article, uh, or a couple. It's actually a multiple articles actually coming out through your Vox and in New York Times. It's a it's a pretty big pretty big news story right now, um, which is that a uh, in Mississippi the sort of one of the centerpieces of this idea of clean coal, which was which was a part of oh, Obama's uh, regulations of coal plants, was be like okay, well if you're going to do that, you have to actually reduce you have to reduce the amount of like you, if you want to have coal still, it needs to find ways to reduce its carbon. Uh, and so this idea of clean coal got a lot of got a, got a lot of play, uh, but then you know when you said when you say that when you, when Darren says the word billions, that's not a lie. Even this one this one Mississippi coal plant, the Kemper coal plant in Mississippi, uh, is already two years behind schedule and more than four billion dollars over its original budget, which. And it's like four billion. Like I feel like whenever you say over budget things, the the important is to know actually how much the original budget was. Right. Because you know if something is, if if it's a three trillion dollar project and you're four billion dollars over, that's that's within the margin of error. And this yeah. is a four billion dollar over its initial budget, which was two point four billion dollars. So this is almost double it, what they said yeah. it was going to cost. They should have in said nearly three hundred percent over budget. Yes, or, like, yeah, I, like yeah, that. exactly. Like a much, a much, much wider range, and it's still not operational. So t- two re- really quick quotes from this article. We're going from a New York Times article on this, as Stefan alluded to. There's there's numerous reports on this. Just really quickly, two things that I had to pull out that I thought was hilarious. So part of the reason uh, that this is even a story was because they had an internal whistleblower, and this whistleblower is not somebody who's against this stuff. They're a huge defense. They really believe in this technology. So so this isn't a you know uh, some hippie liberal that you know broke in and did some whatever. This isn't somebody. This is somebody inside the company who is just like okay, I can't keep my mouth shut anymore. Two hilarious quotes. This is great. Uh, so his name is Wister Wingo. Uh, quote: I've reached a personal tipping point and and feel a duty to act. He's talking about in his 2014 email, which was among uh, a whole bunch that he sent, trying to get people's attention, saying you know what's going on here. Uh, another quote from him was: Hope is not a strategy. This is a high profile project with many misguided enemies. So why give them free ammo? And I think that's really illustrative <laughs> oh, to to talk about sort of his point of view, right? Like right. this is a true believer. Yeah. This is somebody who's who's completely and to this day, despite this story, still believes that this is a valid technology. 
and, and the right way to go. Um, so just for context, to add to that, one other quote that I wanted to pull from him, uh, which was now from the former executive for Mississippi Power. Uh, one of the project's uh, biggest mistakes was to start construction with little of the plant designed. Quote, we believe that from an investor standpoint, this is a wise investment to prove the technology. Mm-hmm. $3 billion later, <laughs> 300% over budget. They didn't actually have a plan about how it was going to happen before they started construction. Yeah. But don't worry. These guys, they totally know. This, you know, forget those stupid hippie liberals uh, and their damn environmentalists and their damn scientists. These guys are sure that if you keep throwing money down that hole, Stefan, one day, and one is, day. If I can harken back to, to, to <laughs> what, like, what's funny about that, that exact sentence you just made is that I had this, I was, uh, Really early on in this year, I went to I went to a, a large sustainability conference in, in 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 Vancouver. I mentioned earlier in the show. And at one point in time, there was a there was a oil and gas uh, uh, executive uh, giving a, giving some sort of talk. And at one point, she she sort of her p- part of her position was whether or not uh, was how on earth we could expect that to basically saying that we needed oil uh, and 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 that we and that her argument was that basically that solar and wind aren't ready yet. Uh, so instead, she wanted us to picture a world where every car had a carbon capture storage on its tailpipe. So we were still using oil, but every single car was individually capturing carbon storage, while simultaneously saying that wind and solar were not, quote unquote, not ready yet. And, and to me, it's like, this is the question. If we build a car right now, uh, and one car gets to be powered on wind and solar, and one car gets to be powered on a clean version of oil and gas, and they're going to race in a year. Which car even gets moving? <laughs> There's a chance that the, the, the second car in that list will not even have tires on it. Uh, and, and meanwhile, and, and so, and so there's, there's, it's like fractally wrong which is an, one of my favorite expressions I haven't had an opportunity to use in a while. It means wrong at every conceivable scale. Uh, so they're, you know, they're, when they're talking about, well, wind and solar isn't ready, that's because the last time they heard anything about the current state of the technology was the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is so ready, they have no idea what they're talking about. Second of all, hey, that thing that's not maybe like 80% as efficient as we'd like it to be, let's not do that. Let's invent this future possible thing that maybe one day maybe could be a reality, hopefully maybe if we get lucky and cross our fingers. But please give us all of your money and don't give them any money. Well, it's That's a, what's happened. Well, exactly. And, and you see the same exact thing with uh, with with te- when the tech billionaires get into get into this kind of conversation. You know, it's, it's the reason why Bill Gates, despite doing so many good things, instead of saying we need to implement wind and solar on a national scale, says we need an energy miracle. It's like, you know, we have, we've, we, like, that's, not a, that's not a solution. A solution, you know, as to, to paraphrase the gentleman in, in the article you just referenced, hope, hope is, is not, not a strategy. A strategy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's going to, if I had a car, that would be in my bumper sticker. <laughs> uh, so we did say that the news was going to get better throughout. So yes. why don't we, we're going to take another break here. And, and just to sort of, uh, just to have somewhat of an incline on this section, Stefan, <laughs> I would like to say. With hope is not a strategy. I well, feel like that hope is not a strategy is pretty good. Uh, but just to say, as far as like the, the slow increasing optimism of the program yeah. is that one of the things I would like to point out is just that I mean if you've been a longtime listener of the show and, and of course you know for me having done the show for nearly 10 years at this point the the frequency with which these types of stories are being published in actual mainstream media and actually getting legitimate attention from the, you know l- the large mass of the public and and from regulators and people is increasing uh, and the 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 a perceived credibility of the sources talking about these stories I per- Underline unperceived. 
credibility of uh, the sources talking about this story is, is also increasing over time. So uh, this isn't a, a, a win, but it's highly embarrassing for the people that I personally consider enemies because they're killing the planet for their personal greed and putting their fingers in their ears. So right. ideologically, they are, they are my enemies. Hmm. So we're going to go to the war. So they're losing. That's right. the thing. They suck and we're winning. <laughs> uh, are we going to win fast enough? Well, we're, kind of, we're going to find out after the break. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're going to come back and hear a whole bunch more from Deirdre, who's been uh, uh, one of our more uh, science-educated people on the program, who's going to tell us a little bit about some science-y stuff, uh, which I'm super interested to hear. I've read the articles, but I really want to hear what Deirdre actually has to say about them. So I'll be thrilled to hear this next section as well. We're going to go to a brief music break. We'll come back. Of course, you're listening on CIUT 89.5. 5FM. You can check out more information about the show and get additional content. Listen to the podcast as well at greenmajority.ca. Also, thank you to all of our syndication partners, including our radio partners, CIUT and Ramble.ca. But Alex now is going to tell us what our second and final music break is. Take it away. Nice fade. Alex with the fade. Well played. <laughs> And that sounded a little insecty, actually. So I'm wondering. I don't know if we're ready to go straight to that, but we're, we're that that will be a segue for at least part of this section. Yes, exactly. Uh, Stefan, you're going to jump us off here a little. No, thing. it's all dear. Oh, it's all dear. All right, dear. Take it away. Insects. I think I am one of the few people in the world um, who actually cares about them. <laughs> um, but we're going to talk about them a little bit today. Um, so a bunch of scientists around the world, a bunch of organizations, different research groups have all come to this conclusion that insects are rapidly, rapidly declining. Um, we've seen about a 40%-ish decline in every single family of insects um, worldwide um, over the past like four decades or so. Um, and this has come from independent studies from various scientists, like uh, meta-analyses, field studies, Everything is pointing to a huge decline in insect populations. Um, but no one really cares. Like, I'm sure if I said that, like, like I just did, um, <laughs> everyone would be just like, oh, okay. Hooray, less bugs. Yeah, like less mosquitoes, less spiders. I don't know, less everything, like less things climbing on us in summer, right? <laughs> but um, I don't think people really understand what this means for the world. Um, there's a really good quote from the head of Bird Life International um, in Germany. His name is Leif Miller. Um, he said, there are many indications that what we see is the result of a widespread poisoning of our landscape. Um, and that is, I mean, what do you guys think of that? <laughs> It's, it's kind of uh, depressing, isn't I, it? For some weird reason, the, the a song by an artist I, I actually dis despise, but it, people keep singing it uh, enough that it's stuck in my head was that whole thing about I started at the bottom, now I'm at the top or whatever. <laughs> thing, started thing. from the bottom. Oh, that yeah. Guy. Yeah. We're, we're, we're setting a fire to the bottom of that. <laughs> so it will make it very hard to, to get to the top. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that was in my head. Yeah. It just was. Yeah. It, <laughs> I love the idea of insects rising to the right of a human being. <laughs> well, no, it's a, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of people will, I think a lot of people will do that. But the, the reason why, I mean, it's not, it's not a positive story, but the, the thing that I think is, is, is important to sort of dis discuss here was that, um, you know, at, at, people's knee jerk reaction. I think, yeah, I think Deirdre, I think you're right. I think most people's knee jerk reaction is so what at, at best and good at worst. Mm -hmm. Um, but, that's really obviously not true, and I think I think I think you're wrong that you're the only person that doesn't care. And I think there are enough 
scientists out there that will, you know, it, this is basically just increasing the number of people ringing alarm bells to try and to try and put some sort of a positive spin on this. And and to the extent that it's like we're we're going to see really noticeable impacts. Um, the trick with uh, insects, though, and uh, another way to sort of look at this was I, I think there will be devastating impacts. There's going to be huge impacts on crop production. And, of course, these they provide the food source for many higher-order animals and whatever, many mm-hmm. of whom we eat. So, th- I mean, this will affect us directly in a ton of ways. However, insects are also extremely resilient because their their birth cycle rates tend to adapt faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- I think that we'll probably get a good scare out of this. But the chance of us being actually able to wipe out, wipe out all insect life, I think we'll be long gone before we successfully <laughs> yeah. wipe out all insects. So which is yeah. not to say don't be concerned, but it is to say uh, there's potentially here an area where we're going to see some impacts that will finally maybe be one of the ways that we get people's attention because all of a sudden there's no food to grow. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to have a huge scare for a couple of years. And then maybe this could be something that where we could it'll get people's attention. There'll be emer- enough of an urgent reaction to drive people into some action. And it's and it's an area where unlike some some things we could talk about with climate change, uh, the past no return thing is is a lot farther just because of the resiliency of that type of life form. But it, I think it's interesting also to, to point out that even even within this even within this sort of study of, of declining insects, there's a hierarchy of of even insects. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about you know when you talk about the, the organizations that leave that, are, that we're losing, uh, you know, people are talking about like when like even this art. So there's a very one quote from Martin Sorg, uh, who's an entomologist. Uh, if part of this study, uh, his, his line is the decline is dramatic and depressing, and it affects all kind of insects, including butterflies, wild bees, and hoverflies. And what's fascinating about that is even in the insect realm, everyone's like, but the butterflies and the bees, yeah. they're the insects that really matter. Let's talk about the, and, you know, it's it's a, it's it's it's, a, it's I almost feel like we're doing the same sort of thing that we just did as a larger context, but like you know, the insects we don't like are invisible. Uh, in the same way that insects are invisible as a much larger context, but yeah. it's you know, but then bees and, and butterflies, which are both very important, especially bees, uh, are the ones that still are the headline grabbers. I have no idea what hoverflies are, and that probably makes me a bad environmentalist. Uh, and, but it's and, interesting. And every day, um, we're in the middle of this huge extinction, um, and every day, like tons and tons of species that are going extinct, and I think the majority of those are insect species, and that's kind of why. Um, I mean, that just drives the point home that, like, we don't care as much about these species that we don't know about. I mean, insects, there are so many of them. And that's kind of one of the problems that these researchers are having is that there are so many species, probably tons of species that we don't know about, and you can't study them all. Um, uh, Actually, one research group in Germany, I think, uh, might be the Zoological Society. Um, they have come up with kind of an automatic or an automated um, survey of biological diversity and richness. Um, So hopefully that'll improve things. But as it stands, there's no way that we can get a good idea of what species are doing what, where, because there's just not enough people doing these studies and um, the data is really limited. what happens in climate change is that like a lot of these species are actually moving north and in continents like Europe where the countries are small, um, you might lose the species in Europe, but that might mean that a bunch of populations are going north um, or they could be dying off. Like a bad one, one bad winter could kill off whole species um, in a country um, and they are resilient, but with the increasing erratic nature of climate change, 
um, it's just it's harder for them to adapt because these generations can't, I guess, like drift that quickly. <laughs> like genetic yeah. mutation doesn't happen that fast. All all I'm trying to say Usually. is that there's a really good chance that uh, if we lose the, the lose it, that the uh, the torch will likely be passed to one of these insects as the mm-hmm. dominant life form on this planet. So we My should best. probably start making cockroaches. nice. Yeah, exactly. My best cockroaches, say. exactly. <laughs> uh, we promised the audience some later news, and Deirdre, you have a slightly happier second news story. Well, happier. I would like to qualify <laughs> happier. Happy because it will make a lot of our listeners happy because it will validate something that they feel. That's right. that's my takeaway. I think this will. It's. <laughs> It, the, 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 I think the news itself is 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 neutral, mm. um, but as far as it will confirm a lot of uh, beliefs that we're people just, have. So we're saying the closest we can provide to happiness is confirmation bias? Neutrality and confirmation <laughs> bias. It's yes. like the audio version of Facebook. <laughs> good. Um, I do actually have some good news, um, and it's good news for a lot of reasons. Um, so as we all know, uh, gene technology is getting really big these days um, in plants, in crops, um, in agriculture. Um, but a scientist at the university, or, or, sorry, at Pennsylvania State University in University Park, um, Jonathan Lynch, has been kind of taking a different approach than tech companies um, to creating better agricultural plants. Um, he's been looking at root structures and different genetic characteristics and hereditary traits of um, of different plants around the world. Um, and he and his team have been breeding using really traditional methods. Um, and in some ways, they're actually beating out the GMO companies, um, partially because of uh, the strict... Uh, guidelines and testing that GMO companies have to face before putting anything out to the market. Um, these guys, because they're not using technology, they're using traditional methods, it's it's just farming. So they can put these products out really fast. And that's becoming more and more important every day because um, in countries that are suffering from drought and um, agricultural losses, um, especially uh, countries in Africa, are are really suffering and they need a solution right now um, to be able to provide food for a lot of people in a short amount of time and and make th- make sure that that's consistent. And um, I spent a bit of time in Tanzania where it's mandatory to plant fields. Um, and this happens in areas where farming is not the most efficient use of land. And the soil is not good for farming, so it results in a lot of crop failure every year. Um, and uh, Lynch's work actually might help this because part of his work is um, looking at drought resistance um, and also uh, nitrogen and phosphorus efficiency, so nutrient efficiency in the roots. Um, he's actually been incredibly successful, and if he can get those to countries um, in Africa, he's already gotten them to countries in er, to, to China um, and rural rural areas in China, and it's already helping people out there. So if he can get those out to the rest of the world, then I think we might be in in good shape. Awesome, yeah. And I think the the underlying point there, a couple things, just to highlight, you you already said, but I want to highlight them, Deirdre. Here is that as well. Uh, there's a few important takeaways from the story. One of them is that you know the the, the they're being they're beating some of these GMO uh, high tech. Uh, options uh, n- 
in in a non apples and apples situation. Like they've mm-hmm. been they've been working on the GMO stuff for a decade. It's still not ready, and they started like a couple years ago. Yeah. And they're already like being planted somewhere. So there's one. So you know the the, the natural approach uh, is is winning. Part of that is due to the regulation, which I think is super important. But that's the other part of the story. Because there's such a rush to get this stuff, because people need it now, there's a lot of pressure being very tactfully applied by these companies, <clears throat> Monsanto, to rush through and to and to reduce the regulations around things like GMO, uh, genetic engineering, uh, and messing with uh, biology. Um, because they're like, hey, we need a solution now. We have to find a way to fast track this, which is just a nightmare scenario. Um, and so we agree that we're, we're, gonna, we're probably going to talk a little bit more about the whole GMO situation. I have a few uh, comments about that as well. We're going to leave the, the sort of generalized GMO conversation for the uh, the bonus show, I think, at least briefly. But as far as this story is concerned, was there something else that jumped out at you, Stefan? Uh, not so much, but I want to I want to give us that we only have we're running out of the show, so I want to give us the one last dose of good news. Unless Deirdre has any last thoughts on, uh, on GMO. I would issues. like to say that. Um, Lynch's team did help with GMO companies and their production of canola and their enhancement to the canola plant, which is huge in Canada. So Mm. they can work together. Like, it's not mutually exclusive. Right. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, to carry on the good news, because we're now down to, now down to two minutes left, uh, the last piece of good news that we promised, Tease, this is the one that actually is, I think, just good news, uh, is that Washington, D.C.'s pension fund has announced full fossil fuel divestment. Uh, we need like a clapping Woo. sound to hit. Like, Yay! nice. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In-house. We also do in-house soundboards for everyone. Fully. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but what's for full divestment? And not only that. What's interesting about this is that they went and way ahead and did it for the last couple. They've been doing it for the last couple of years. I thought um, that was hilarious. They're doing it in secret. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then then they were like, "Psych, we basically already done it." And they're mic dropping and walking away. <laughs> like it's you know it's it's six point four billion dollars. So it's not a unbelievably massive thing, but it's a yet another. Uh, you know, it seems that cities and districts are are increasingly being proven to be the places where people where where, where progressive uh, policies on this sort of thing can be can push for it. Uh, so to see a, a large district, especially the one that houses the white house uh you know to actually take action on this is is uh, is encouraging at least all right so we're we're gonna leave it there i have more uh, stuff for the bonus show you've been listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm thank you so much to our radio partners our, our listeners and as well as my two co-hosts today and uh, our tech in the other room we're going to continue the discussion a little bit about gmo and have some other uh, but i have another non-environment thing but i'm not going to tease it at all you're just going to listen to the podcast download that at greenmajority.ca for our brief after show uh and the polished edit version of the program uh but with that uh we're we'll just leave it there we're going to yeah. cruise out on a high note Thank you very much to Stefan, Deirdre, and Alex for joining me today. And that's it for this week's edition of The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. You're now listening to the Green Majority Bonus Show. Thank you so much for joining us. And please uh, keep in mind as well, if you enjoy this content, we do need your support. You can become a member for as little as $1 a month. It will help go to get us equipment, uh, helps provide some time for uh, for people to do the many, many hours that are involved in doing this show. Uh, and it's a great way that you can contribute and be a part of spreading good environmental conversations. Be a member at greenmajority.ca or go to patron directly, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash greenmajority. You're listening to The Bonus Show, the after show, the after bonus, bonus after show here on the Green Majority uh, podcast version. Uh, we have a, a subtopic, a subreddit topic today of uh, GMO stuff. GMO stuff and then a potential teaser for Trump-related 
tomfoolery after that. We'll mm. see how that goes. But first, uh, Deirdre, so I, I have long stated a position that I'm highly skeptical of the defense of GMOs. I've had that position since well before a whole giant laundry list of people that I respect very highly, including uh, the current sort of incarnation of my hero, Carl Sagan, which is Bill Nye, the science guy. Coming out on the side of basically saying y'all need to calm down. So... Uh, would you please tell us a little bit about some of the some of the people that are that are saying you said something you were teasing us in the between here something about uh, you know a whole bunch of Nobel laureates and whatnot and then uh, anything you wish to say about uh, the defense of, of at least some GMOs I'm not actually not sure what your position is but if you want to tell us a little bit about them about that first um, yeah so the most recent story um, about GMOs um, that is it's pretty big is that 100 Nobel laureates have written an open letter. Uh, to Greenpeace um, to say, to tell them to stop bashing GMOs, basically. Um, it's it's pretty harsh, <laughs> but uh, they make a lot of good points, and these are a lot of incredibly smart people, um, most of which have uh, Nobel Prizes in medicine, chemistry, and physics. Um, so they obviously know what they're talking about, and it kind of really hit me because I have a lot of uh, friends and colleagues and acquaintances who are on that um, bashing GMO bandwagon. And I think it has to do with um, public relations and media and what we know and what we don't know. Um, And my pet peeve is that people are so quick to jump on the no GMO bandwagon when really, as, as these scientists are saying, it could save large parts of the world. Like, this technology could save people from starvation. Um, and I think for me, the fact that people are railing on the system as a whole, the GMO system as a whole, really kind of pisses me off and it's it's because for me it's not the gmos that are bad but the system that they're being processed through that is the problem when it, yeah i think a you may have said something even more controversial than when uh <laughs> than when uh someone we called we called vegans racist on the show uh but uh if you don't know what that means go back a couple episodes you'll find that one uh but i think but i think it's what's go, interesting hold, go back a couple episodes instead of emailing us or, yes or for the love of god at least first yes exactly thank you um but so the uh uh but the I think it's interesting, of course, is that it, what it does fall into in I think a very interesting way, which is, is that this the environment movement is 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 is, is, is often falls into the naturalistic fallacy trap. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the environment movement un, unquestionably it's not, we there, we very often find ourselves be, feeling like you know falling into this idea that well, well nature is na- like whatever feels feels more natural is more yeah. right. Uh, and I think that's for me where my concern about the sort of response comes from. It's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, there's other valid reasons to be concerned about about. GMOs, but I think there's some of the, the the immediate responses end up being things like, well, this is how we've always done it, which we, people use for things that we know are bad. Uh, and it really does. It's interesting. It does dilute the sort of kind of conversation about respecting science, because um, you you know in, in that in that how how do you sometimes you know fight climate change for science and then fight scientists and sit back and forth. When we were growing up, we could smoke in bars, or at least you know people, yeah. Yeah. people over the age of you know eighteen could smoke in bars. Um, what I see as the main uh, problem with GMOs is that we really don't – like they're so young as a technology that we really don't know what the impacts are. Yeah. So even for Nobel laureates to write a letter defending them, 
they they might have a better uh, estimate of what the effects of GMOs will be on human health than I do, but but since we haven't had a proper trial period for GMOs over the course of say somebody's lifetime of eating only genetically modified products versus uh, only natural or organic products, we really don't know. And if we're, unless we're willing to be like the human test subjects for this like artificially altered food, then we we do run the risk of of there being some some side effects of eating eating them. Yeah, and I think so. That, that that's an important thing. I want I want to bring up two important sort of technical details that people need to understand about GMOs, and then and then I will address my my complaint, and then I'd like to go back to Deirdre to see if if she agrees because I, I think uh, undeniably is the most informed person of at least the four of us on this issue. Uh, so my uh, first of all, a definition. We need we we all need to understand one extremely important thing that I think most people, regardless of how you feel about this issue, do not understand which is the GMO stands for genetically modified organism. That ranges anywhere from traditional breeding technology, aka, hey, these two plants grew a little higher than the other two plants, so I'm going to I'm going to use those seeds to try and natural breeding, how we got all domestic dogs. Uh, that as far as most people's definition is natural, it's also technically GMO. On the other end, uh, GMO also goes all the way, runs all the way to the gamut to things like cloning, like outright cloning. Uh, and things like completely whole cloth creation of life forms, right? So there's a there's a pretty freaking wide, you know, this is a wide damn highway. Okay, so when we're objecting, first of all, no one can be anti-GMO because then you're just anti-technology, like literally back to the Stone Age, like we don't know anything, right? So first of all, the, just saying you're anti-GMO is a, is a silly thing to say um, because you're not really, <laughs> if pressed. You're yeah. not actually against GMOs. You're against certain types of GMOs under certain circumstances. Wait, like, are you against all the dog breeds? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Wolves only. Original life. <laughs> you know, we're going to go back in Jurassic Park, all the original form of every. We're going to go right back to Noah's boat or yeah. whatever. Yeah. To be right. fair, to be fair, I would, I would love if the official GMO, anti-GMO hashtag became hashtag wolves only. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think for me, for me, that's all I want. Yes, but Stefan, those are 17th century wolves, so they're not really wolves. We need oh, right, to go back to the original paleo you know, era. Saber-toothed tigers only? Saber-toothed tigers only, hashtag. Uh, so here's the other. So here's my here's my uh, my problem, and, I, and I'm just simply going to actually just expand on what Alex was just saying, was that when we're talking about this technology, there's range of technology. Some of them I'm more comfortable with than others. My comfortable with them is not relevant uh, as far as are they okay because what matters is the data, science, testing. Here's where the problem comes in. As we alluded to in the in the program, there are a number of technologies that are being rushed out the door, under-researched and under-checked, and then put into the ecosystem where they could potentially become uncontrollable, as we already saw with even as far back as this whole seed case with the Roundup Ready stuff. There's a perfect Canadian example. Look it up. Uh, we won't go into that more here, but... You know, so even being able to control these life forms is a problem. So, okay, fine. Even that is not necessarily a thing. But we have to be absolutely certain that this stuff is not going to go. Because if we get it wrong, we only get, it, we only get to get it wrong once. Right with something like this, once something is out there, once and uh, you know we're talking about things like genetically modified mosquitoes to deal with plague. It sounds really sexy, and I'm thrilled if you can do it. I'm not confident that you are going to uh, have validated it properly before you actually release it, and that's because I have zero trust in uh, uh, reg- regulators. Right. So, am I against the concept of GMO? Obviously not. Nobody could be. 
nobody possibly could be under the correct definition. Am I very hesitant around some of the GMO technology that's being implemented today? Yes. But I would be okay with it if I had any confidence whatsoever in our ability to make sure that it was safe before it was being released. And I simply don't. And I think that skepticism is healthy. And, and finally, before I'd like to throw back to Deirdre and then we'll, we'll open it back up again, uh, is I don't think that those Nobel laureates and I don't think Bill Nye, the science guy, or any of these other high-profile people that I have an utmost respect for has addressed that issue. I, don't hear, I have not heard any of them claim that we have strong enough regulations to ensure that there isn't going to be a catastrophic accident. I've only heard them address the concern, which, which admittedly is most people's problem with it, that this technology by definition is wrong or by definition is evil. It isn't. But, you ha- but I've heard no one address my further concern. Are we properly insulated from mistakes? The error bore on screwing up on this is so damn high, I deserve to be convinced that, that proper uh, security and, and account is being taken into account. And, and I think that we, we only need to look as far as Monsanto to be sure that it's not. Back to Deirdre. Yeah, I think, um, I think those are great points. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I, I think the part of the reason why they're not being addressed is because of that definition problem. People, when they attack GMOs, um, whether in, in whatever way, um, they're not being specific enough. Um, and I think we really start, uh, we really need to start asking more concise questions um, about regulation because that's, I mean, really, like you're right, that's, that's where the problems are going to arise. Um, it could be, it could it could turn into like an invasive species problem and wipe out a bunch of the biodiversity and wherever they're planting it. It could turn into a health problem, um, and I think yeah, you're right. Testing is crucial, um, but I I think that the letter is addressing a different problem, and that's kind of on the other side of things where Greenpeace is using media um, that also generalizes GMOs and that's not helping things it's implanting ideas into their large following um, that are not necessarily backed up by science and research and that's a problem on both sides and I think both sides need to look at what they're doing wrong and how to improve how they're communicating the pros and cons of GMOs and I, I have, uh, I have, uh, because we're jumping on this, I'll run my one thought process first. But first, I want to say that my new hashtag is hashtag only werewolves. Uh, <laughs> because if there's going to be an invasive species, uh, it is that we create werewolves by Hybrids. accident. That, Stephen, they preferred lichen. Right. All right. So, so I think I think the uh, I think the uh, I think the werewolves Armageddon is now my third favorite Armageddon. As I'm slowly <laughs> carrying one number one remains jellyfish waters. Uh, as a shout out to a very old article that we that we covered. I think when Kevin Farmer was on the show, freaking uh, sharks with freaking laser beams is holding steady at number ten. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think two was was lizards with laser. Yeah. Beams. What about the lizards? That, they were two. That's why they're two. I'm remembering this. this well, is they happening. can they can walk on land. That's why it's like the same threat but worse. Yes. Exactly. Um, but but I think for me. Uh, uh, the, the conversation that I think is what, what bothers me about this conversation is that it, it ignores what I think actually the most important part of the conversation is, uh, which is the complete failure uh, to have a sustainable agriculture system, despite whether we're using GMOs or not. 
mm-hmm. you know, like, and, and I think GMOs, the my major problem, my, my main conversation about, about GMOs or specifically a certain type of GMOs are the ones that are specifically made to be resistant to things like Roundup, which allows us to then just spray Roundup fucking everywhere, uh, and that's our and that's our solution to to, to, to pesticides and like that. Like this is the, our my problem with 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 these things is that we're creating these monocultures that are in no way sustainable, mm-hmm. only exist the requirement, and then if anything goes wrong, they're they're you know they're super high yield but super not resilient, and so we're setting ourselves up for for a, for one disastrous event to kill so much of our, of our of our of our crops because we're creating a system and the, the GMO conversation seems to be ignore the central that that central promise conversation. I, I, like again, I think there's the conversation needs to be about how to make our entire food system more resilient, and and that's the conversation to be having rather than saying rather than demonizing or de, or, or deifying uh, you know what we're now calling as GMOs. Yeah, I, I mean what it comes down to for me is that I just I'm, this is coming from a place you know for for full bias of of me having the opinion that you know because I'm a super crazy reorganize the entire world sort of person but uh i I just don't think that you should be allowed to make corporate profits off of things that are required for life Mm. Uh, i don't think that you should be able to make a multi-billion dollar multinational company off feeding people giving them water or building them homes now all those people should be paid but i I don't think you should be able to make a multi-trillion dollar multinational conglomerate out of basic human requirements but you know i'm a crazy liberal yeah uh alex I was just thinking you sounded like a crazy communist. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Well. But, but also convincing. You can profit off video games, just not off damn bread. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You, and, and maybe like a, co- a communist idea when related to basic necessities, but then a capitalist everything else would be a, a good solution, right? I didn't pay Alex to say that. Just for <laughs> uh, so we we're, we're we're moving right along. We've had quite a, a, a already a lengthy. Do you want to get into whether or not Trump uh, yeah. Trump thing, or do we? Wanna... We're at fourteen minutes. Why don't we spend two minutes on Trump? Okay. So here's the question: I'm going to the group, and we'll run around everyone, and we'll walk off. Uh, there is one of the people I follow on, on Twitter is that Jeet here. Uh, is a Canadian columnist, uh, and he's basically pitching uh, consistently, semi semi seriously and semi not seriously, uh, that Donald Trump's entire presidency is a is a giant grift. Uh, which basically means that he never planned to win. He does not want to win. His goal is just to get famous and then start a. I believe the new plan, the, the, the most recent one, is is the is to use this as a launching tool for Trump TV uh, and make a TV station out of this. Um, and so, and and that's the actual entire plan. And that explains why. And part of this is explains why he's such a bad politician. Yeah. Uh, you know, like not just to mention that you know, he won the primaries. That takes something, but still, like. If you ask anyone his, how his last two months have been going, the answer usually is not great. You know, he's pulling 11% behind the second least popular candidate who has ever run for office, and that is only because he is the least popular candidate who's ever run for office. Uh, so, is Donald Trump actually trying, or is he running a grift? Uh, starting with Alex. Um, I, I've been secretly hoping this all along, and I haven't really talked about it with anyone because I didn't think that they would believe me. <laughs> um, but I'm glad that I'm glad that you said that because uh, it affirms that maybe, possibly, we won't have to deal with uh, Donald Trump presidency. <laughs> Uh, so they, they've gone as far as to claim that he's going to drop out near, right near the big end, of, right near before the presidency. Like if it becomes wow. clear he's going to lose, he's going to just bail. That would throw a, a wrench in the system. <laughs> so a quick important comment on that: two two important data points. To answer your question, yes, mm. I think it's it's 
practically certain, but there, there's a reason for that. Uh, two quick data points about that. One, that theory is not uh, at least an outside theory. Uh, Rachel Maddow on a major network has already done an entire hour show providing evidence for that theory. So that is not a that is not a loony conspiracy theory. There's some very serious people who who think that that's very likely to be the case. Uh, second of all, uh, sorry. To, Three things. Uh, the second of all was that um, it's uh, been alleged, and I think there's a mountain of evidence that not only is Donald Trump lying about being having $10 billion, there's an excellent amount of actual evidence now being presented that there's a very, very strong chance that he either he's the largest tax cheat in the history of the United States or that he is not even worth uh, $500 million. He doesn't even have half of $1 billion. And there's a good chance that the entire reason he went on this presidential run is that he, he may, in fact, almost be bankrupt again. So uh, he is a liar through and through. Uh, the, the third thing is the nightmare scenario, which is that I don't think he'll pull out. And the reason for that is uh, the Republican establishment is looking for continuance of policy. That's why they're so terrified of supporting him, right? That's why the establishment's been against him the entire time. He will accept the win because he will get all the attention and he doesn't actually want our own government. But guess who does? The Republican establishment and all their corporate buddies want that influence. So I think it's much more likely, even if that is true, that he will in fact accept the presidency and then sit back and we have a Dick Cheney situation where the Republican establishment and all their corporate buddies are actually going to be the ones just directly creating policy. And I think that's potentially even more of a nightmare scenario uh, than Donald Trump himself making the recommendations. Well, you know, he may, you know, do a whole bunch of horrible things. He might accidentally do some good stuff just because he's a lunatic. Um, so I actually consider that to be worse, hmm. uh, possibly uh, on a very, on, you know, at numbers nine and 10 out of 10, 10 uh, terrible things that could happen. I think additional evidence that he might be running a grift, though, are that, uh, he has spent like very little on his campaign, I think. Oh yeah, and he keeps saying he's going to spend money after the. Con- he keeps, keeps kicking the idea of spending a bunch of money uh, further and further down the road. He, yeah. He's now he's now being funded by. He successfully lobbied and is now uh, is being funded by one of the people that he used to attack Jeb Bush and was essentially the final nail on the coffin that pushed Jeb Bush out of the race is by attacking Jeb Bush, going to this person for money. That person is now funding Trump's campaign. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. He also I, I heard a statistic that I don't remember about him having like so few uh, employees as part of his campaign and like national reach. He has just basically a token number of, of people working for for his mm-hmm. campaign that it doesn't even make sense that he would have gotten He's somewhere yeah, somewhere around far. 60 compared to Hillary Clinton's somewhere around eight or nine hundred. Yeah. yeah. And whenever they talk about a ground game, like, you know, the idea of that, like, yeah, he's there's just no support network built in with with his candidacy. Uh, Deirdre, is he running a grift? My first thought is that it would make, no matter what happens, it would make a great reality television show for <laughs> Trump TV if he is planning on anything. If, you, if, there is a, if there is a behind-the-scenes documentary for his entire campaign being shot right now, yeah. you know, he every comment at the very least of him being a good businessman may may still be accurate. Yeah. There, Genius. There, I forget his name, but there's a late night comedian who's now on several shows repeated an <laughs> offer uh, that 
if he steps down from the race, if he just drops out, that they will offer him a, a, a two-year contract on a TV show where he gets to play the president. And they're like, hey, look, you can have all the fun of being president, and we all don't have to be terrified. Everyone's a winner. And they're, apparently, they're ser- it, it went off as a joke the first time, and apparently this has now been authorized. And they are, in fact, offering him a two-year TV contract to play the president in a TV That's show amazing. if he drops out of the race. You wow. should do it. <laughs> Winning. And I yeah. think honestly, he's. T- I, I honestly think he's tempted. I believe that sincerely. <laughs> so, so there's. So there's a, that offer. So there's. There have been campaign managers who've co- have been quoted, or people who used to work on this campaign who've been quoted saying things like, "If you offered him a billion dollars to quit, he would." Yeah. <laughs> was like, you know why? Because he doesn't have a billion dollars. <laughs> Well, exactly. Um, but yeah, so uh, so I guess Darren, you've already said your statement whether he's running a grift. Um, I'm I, I I don't know what to think about him. To be honest, I think the I, I think what it is fascinating is it's it's I think I, I can't decide whether he's running a grift or if he's just so deluded in his own self-aggrandizing that he can't accept anyone else's opinion on anything. Um, you know, like I think he's he won he like you know he. Everyone thought he he won the primary by 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 being bombastic and imbecilic, and I feel like he's like, well, that's the old, I'm just going to double down. Uh, you know, I'm not going to have any good policy as ideas. I'm not going to have anything. I'm just going to I'm just going to double down on being on doing this, and it's and you know, it leads to leads to all the all the ridiculousness that we've seen. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's his nickname, Donald Double Down Trump. <laughs> exactly. Um, but anyway, so whether or not we'll see what like. We'll see what happens. Uh, it's kind of fascinating to see how it how it's impacting the sort of like what I what the really thing to look at for me is whether how much it impacts the down card. You know whether or not will Donald Trump give the Democrats the not only the Senate but also the Congress because that's you know, that's one of the major things. And if if if, if Donald Trump managed to torpedo the uh, torpedo the Republican Party so badly that they actually the Democrats managed to win Congress, you know maybe maybe he's maybe he's maybe he's not the hero we deserve. <laughs> But he's the hero we need right now. Wow. <laughs> Hooray, the slightly less corrupt and at least a little better on social issues, but still pretty damn corrupt party one. Hooray! <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Low we've bar. said two minutes. We're now at six. So let's, well, let's tie it off. Thank you so much for listening to the Green Majority After Show. See you all real soon, folks. Take care.